Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Part 1, Improving Quality of Care and Shared Decision-Making in Myelofibrosis, is provided by Axis Medical Education and Q-Synthesis, and is supported by an educational grant from Celgene Corporation. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Thank you so much. Really excited to, to be here and to be sharing some exciting updates in the care of patients with myelofibrosis. We'll be learning more about the, the broad spectrum of myelofibrosis, new therapies, efficacy, safety, and personalizing care for myelofibrosis patients. So just setting the stage, myelofibrosis, we'll abbreviate as MF. We've got Patients who evolve from ET or PV into myelofibrosis versus those who have primary myelofibrosis are initial diagnosis. Now, first, let's talk about the burden of having these diseases and myelofibrosis and the symptoms that it causes. Indeed, uh, what are the burden of having this disease? What are our treatment goals? How do we quantify symptoms in these patients? Uh, how do we use these symptoms in trials? Let's get through this, some of this data because understanding symptoms is an important part of managing these diseases. First, the burden of having myelofibrosis can include risk of vascular events. It can include difficulties with cytopenia, such as anemia or thrombocytopenia. It can include splenomegaly, sometimes very problematic splenomegaly. There's a risk of progression to acute leukemia. And there's the burden of the disease-associated symptoms. All of this impacting an individual, a patient, whose baseline health and comorbidities are a key part of their health. Now, we work to develop treatment goals for these patients. For the most part, short of stem cell transplant, our medical therapies do not cure the disease. So our treatments and why we use them, we have to be very thoughtful. Are we trying to improve symptoms? or cytopenias leading to symptoms? Are we trying to impact quality of life? Are we trying to control the disease? Are we trying to help them to live longer? Our treatment goals really need to align with our patient values uh, and their input. Now, to assess symptoms, uh, our team at uh, initially at Mayo Clinic, and now I'm at UT Health San Antonio, developed the patient-reported outcome form that is helpful in assessing symptoms in myelofibrosis. We looked at symptoms of fatigue, spleen-related symptoms, constitutional symptoms, and quality of life, and developed the myelofibrosis symptom assessment form. We then wove in vascular or mood-related symptoms and developed the MPN symptom assessment form, or in short, the MPN-10, 10 core items that help give a profile of the patient's symptoms. This has now been translated and validated in many languages. These are the 10 most common symptoms. And as you'll see in terms of prevalence on the left and severity on the right, a lot of patients have these symptoms. In fact, well over half with fatigue being the worst and other symptoms usually being associated with quite severe disease, fever, weight loss, bone pain. Uh, in green are the symptoms in myelofibrosis. However, you'll see PV and ET patients, still the symptoms can be highly present. Now, the utilization of the MPN10 allows you to look at symptoms both at baseline and then potentially with improvement, 
with therapy, whether that's with jack inhibition or other appropriate therapy. There have now been a variety of variants of these symptom assessment forms developed in the process of clinical trials, but we have validated that they're to the largest degree interchangeable in terms of their outcome and patients understanding them. Now, indeed, as we look at these symptoms, you see this full spectrum of symptoms present in over half, but the key is what symptoms are present in your patient? Uh, how severe are they? And if you start an intervention, are they better, the same, or worse? Additionally, there's times that toxicities of therapy might make the symptoms more problematic. Now, symptom assessment has become the standard for the assessment of new therapies. And large clinical trials, both all of these that are clinical trials from the past, but all the ongoing phase three trials in MPNs are utilizing this same methodology. Now we have learned that these symptoms are deeply tied to an individual's quality of life. And indeed the biggest impact on quality of life uh, for MPN patients is both issues of their MPN as well as if there is a mood disorder present. Indeed, there is not infrequently distress, anxiety, or depression, given the chronic nature of the disease and uncertainty of the future. So in symptom burn, a few things to take away from today's talk. First, there is a range of disease burden. Symptoms can be common and they can be severe. Uh, as we get around to prognosticating, they can affect prognosis, treatment plans, and dosing. Tracking symptoms are part of the NCCN guidelines for MPNs, and they are linked to the biology of the disease. Indeed, symptoms arise from inflammation and release of cytokines that we believe come from the aberrant clone from the disease. Now, what about molecular diagnostics in these patients? Again, those of you that are my age or older remember the days of where MPNs were identified really through a complex set of clinical criteria. In 2005, the discovery of the JAK2 mutation really helped us to sort out who had an MPN and largely who did not. Uh, we now have other mutations in calreticulin or MPL that can be driver or uh, main mutations. There are now additional somatic mutations, but there still remain patients that are JAK2, V617F negative, CalR negative, MPL. These are triple negative patients. Now, as we look at the distribution of these mutations, JAK2 here in blue, present in almost everyone with PV, the majority with ET, and the majority with MF, calreticulin uh, in, in uh, about a third each in ET and myelofibrosis, and MPL in just a sliver in both ET and MF patients. You're showing the CalR here in red. Now, regardless of which mutation, they all activate the JAK-STAT pathway. So CalR activates it in one way, JAK2 mutation activates another way, and MPL in a third way. The importance of this is that JAK inhibitors, which inhibit the JAK-STAT pathway, are active irrespective of which of these driver mutations the patient has. Now, the cal mutation was the third one identified, and in part, it was a problematic 
mutation to identify because there are many different mutation types, all in a specific exon that can lead to the same phenotype. But it did make it more difficult to identify early on. Now, the diagnostic criteria for myelofibrosis, let's look at this specifically on the right. In the left, there are those for ET and PVERA where we uh, need the presence of a driver mutation, or if not, a fairly complex series of criteria. For myelofibrosis, there's both bone marrow features, not having an alternative myeloid disorder, and then the presence of a mutation, a driver mutation in JAK2-KLR or MPL. Now it's important, there are minor criteria as well. Anemia, leukocytosis, splatomegaly, elevated LDH, uh, leukoerythroblastosis, again, a variety of minor criteria. The key to this is that if an individual is lacking any of these features, you know, they may be evolving, but not have at least overt myelofibrosis. Now, there have been many additional somatic mutations that have been identified outside of JAK2, uh, CALAR, and MPL. And you see this distribution here, and you'll recognize these mutations because many of them have been brought up in the concept of CHIT, or clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential, as well as in moderate dysplastic syndrome, or even in acute leukemia with mutations in IDH1, IDH2, ASXL1, etc. Indeed, uh, we learn more about these mutations. Some of them have important prognostic significance, but they both have a tie to myeloid pathogenesis as well as to the process of aging. And indeed, in individuals that are, quote, triple negative for these other three, frequently they will have an additional somatic mutation, particularly if they are older. Now, myelofibrosis has quite a variable survival. The average uh, when I was in training was three to five years. And we recognize now that really represents a spectrum of individuals that will live anywhere from one year to others that live 40 years. So it can be really quite heterogeneous. Because of this, there has been a a uh, broad range of prognostic criteria that have been developed uh, all the way back to the LEO score, to then the IPSS, DIPSS, and then multiple new ones that include genomic variables. The ones most are familiar with are the ones with clinical criteria, the dynamic international prognostic scoring system, looking at age, white count, anemia, BLAST symptoms. And with that, are able to stratify people in survivals that are relatively short to much longer, with the main implication for decision regarding stem cell transplant. Now we weave in molecular features, and I'll point on the left to the MIPSS 70, individuals under the age of 70, and if they have high-risk molecular features, greater than two high-risk molecular mutations, or do not have a calorticular mutation, they have a worse outcome. So these are individuals with ASXL1, ECH1 and 2, IDH1 and 2. Fortunately, there is a website that one is able to type in MIPSS70. It takes you to a website. You could plug these in and consider doing this in any one of a transplantable age with myelofibrosis. 
Now, I mentioned that calreticulin is one of these that we identify and the lack of a calreticulin mutation. The reason for that is that patients with a calreticulin mutation overall seem to have a more favorable disease course. In fact, they may have slightly different disease biology. This showing some of these additional somatic mutations and how as individual mutations, they can predict a worse outcome for individual patients. And the more of these mutations you have, the worse the outcomes. Again, probably showing clonal instability as well as risk of progression. Here showing that MIPSS 70, and you can see the nice distribution in terms of stratifying risk and is the most impactful regarding decision-making regarding stem cell transplantation for these individuals. Take-home points, these three mutations are by far the most common. Additional somatic mutations are associated with adverse prognosis. There's many prognostic models that do incorporate clinical and molecular features. MIPSS 70 is probably the one I would recommend. Now, the treatment and management of the disease. Well, first, you have to determine what is the initial risk for the patient. Uh, when do we consider uh, frontline medical therapy, movement to stem cell transplant, and then how do we weave in additional therapies, backup options, if we see evidence of progression? So here, you diagnose, you assess survival, you develop your treatment plan. If they have higher risk disease, they're younger, they have a good uh, donor, stem cell transplant. If not, frontline medical therapy. If they fail that, do we circle back to transplant? Do we move to second line medical therapy? Or if they're progressing to acute leukemia, we manage them in a slightly different way altogether. Now, treatment guidelines, again, they're not perfect. They're made by people around the table. Here's kind of a madman sort of a photo I found from the 60s. But again, not too dissimilar with a bunch of MPN experts uh, getting around a table and deciding these. I was the inaugural panel chair, so it was a great process, but again, it's, it's a consensus process. Now, treatment guidelines are great, and people say, well, they're not specific enough. And to some degree, they're not meant to be. The treatment guidelines are the guardrails. What are the reasonable options in a certain situation? The art of medicine is how you as a practitioner, as a physician, decide to treat that individual patient based on all of the different evidence. So if you wanted to give somebody, let's say rituxan, it's not in those guardrails because rituxan is not active in myelofibrosis. There you would be out on, uh, on an island onto yourself. But it does give you the option between the options that we know are beneficial in that circumstance. So lower risk individuals, clinical trial, maybe observe, but if they're symptomatic, consider ruxolitinib uh, if they need cytoreduction, perhaps hydrea or pegylated interferon. If they're higher risk, here's where the transplanter needs to be woven into the equation. They need to see them, they need to see is a transplant gonna occur in the near future. If they have marked thrombocytopenia, consider a trial. If they have normal platelets, Ruxolitinib and fedratinib are both approved in this setting, and we'll get around to that in a moment. Uh, and for a clinical trial, always a consideration. If they lose benefit, fedratinib is our only approved therapy. 
if they've already seen ruxolitinib that can be used as second line. Individuals that have anemia as a main driver may benefit from a combination of therapies, the addition of an erythropoietin stimulating agent if they have a suboptimal EPO level, a clinical trial, and there's some drugs in development, such as lisbatercept and others that might be a consideration. Now, our core therapy had been ruxolitinib and has been, and that is based on the favorable phase three data from the Comfort One study of ruxolitinib versus placebo in patients with higher risk myelofibrosis, showing good benefits in splenomegaly and symptoms. And it's now been approved for almost 10 years uh, with good safety and efficacy. And here's showing improvement in splenomegaly on the left, as, uh, as well as the improvement in symptoms by the waterfall plot, both in aggregate and by individual symptoms. Now we have learned over time that for ruxolitinib to be the most effective, you have to use enough of it. So I do see that there are sometimes patients that are being underdosed, receiving less than 10 milligrams a day and having a suboptimal response. Really try to shoot for a higher dose of this medication. If you start at a lower dose because of concern of cytopenias, the important part is to increase the dose over time. Indeed, that dosing is based on the platelet count, 15 twice a day for platelets of 100 to 200,000, greater than 200,000, 20 twice a day. If you start at five twice a day for a lower platelet count, do increase it over time as they are stabilized. Now, patients can develop some anemia with, with ruxolitinib. However, we've not seen that that equates to the prognostic significance of anemia at baseline. It is a bit of a medication-related effect. If you inhibit JAK2, you inhibit erythropoiesis, but it does not seem to worsen outcomes. The COMFORT-2 study was done compared to best alternative therapy, and in short, had similarly uh, beneficial results, both in terms of dose and efficacy by spleen and symptoms. Now, we have learned over time that it is crucial for individuals to experience the maximal benefit from ruxolitinib, which can include potentially a survival advantage, that they have sufficient reduction in the size of the spleen. And that individuals with a greater than 50% spleen reduction have the best survival. I don't think that's solely because of the mechanical effect of reducing the spleen. I think that it is a marker that they're receiving sufficient jack inhibition to have the optimal benefit. Indeed, when we look at the aggregate five-year data from both phase three studies put together, uh, the individuals who received ruxolitinib as initial therapy have a longer survival. Now, it's been highly beneficial, but we still see that the negative prognostic impact of high-risk molecular features still has an impact even in good responders. So you see there in yellow in the survival curve that the high-risk molecular feature patients do the worst. They do better if they're on ruxolitinib, but a high-risk molecular feature still has significant implications. And if that is a driver of moving toward transplant, should not delay moving toward transplant. Now, patients can fail ruxolitinib for a variety of reasons. Uh, they're losing benefit. They had benefit for a long time, and now they have progression. 
the cytopenias are limiting the therapy. There's been thought that if you interrupt ruxolitinib and resume it after a holiday, that there can be benefit. Uh, and that has been shown in anecdotal cases and in some series. But individuals who fail ruxolitinib, particularly if they've had clonal evolution, have a limited survival and alternative therapy and trials are important considerations. Now, fedratinib has been approved now since September of 2019, about a year. It's a JAK inhibitor, and it has been shown in both JAK inhibitor naive patients as well as in second line patients to be both efficacious and safe in individuals with a plate account of greater than 50,000. Uh, efficacy compared to placebo, uh, significant by the standard methodology uh, at the 400 milligram a day dose level. Individuals with uh, receiving it as a second line therapy, a trial that Dr. Harrison and I led, similar showing significant efficacy and safety. Now, individuals receive 400 a day with a plate account of 50,000 or above. Now, one important thing that led to a black box warning in this drug is a rare but real risk of either uh, cognitive issues or Wernicke's encephalopathy, less than 1%. And it is advised that thiamine levels be checked and replaced, that you monitor for Wernicke's encephalopathy. Again, the risk of this is small, and after approval, I think has not been a major issue, but an important precaution to take for your patients. Now, the JAK inhibitor landscape has continued to evolve. Procridinib uh, being tested for individuals with marked thrombocytopenia and having had prior phase, beneficial phase three studies, of which I was one of the leaders of those studies. Mamalidinib with good improvement in anemia currently in a phase three study and accruing, and fredradinib, which I had mentioned, but still has ongoing studies, both in combination as well as ongoing safety studies. Now, what about fredradinib? Further updates is that it can be dosed at full dose for individuals with a plate account of 50 to 100,000 with good reduction in spleen volume and symptom improvement. And this is to distinguish it somewhat from ruxolitinib where the dose is modified in that setting. Uh, it is beneficial for symptom control. Here's showing improvements in symptoms, uh, individual symptoms compared to placebo uh, in the Jakarta study. It overall improved quality of life in these individuals. Now in the second line setting, Jakarta 2, we did an updated analysis which we presented with now a stricter definition of what it meant to fail ruxolitinib, as well as a sufficient exposure to be able to judge the therapy. And what we saw that we presented at last year's ASH was truly around a third of patients having a robust response for either spleen or symptoms in individuals that had failed ruxolitinib through fairly rigorous criteria. So this is probably the most underutilized part of its indication in 2020, if you have patients that are failing ruxolitinib, consider fedratinib. Pacridinib is uh, also out there on trials for you, and we've seen good safety and efficacy, even in individuals with a plate account less than 50,000. And for cis 2 a second line showing, again, safety and efficacy 
in individuals with marked thrombocytopenia, a unique niche for them. Malmolybdenum in a phase three, uh, now in a prior positive phase three, where it was compared frontline against ruxolitinib, it showed similarities in splenomegaly control, slightly inferior for symptom control, perhaps better for improvements in cytopenias. Simplify 2, a second line, was a more mixed study, but the control arm remained largely ruxolitinib, confounding the results. Now, there's a, a, a robust pipeline that could be its own talk of different agents targeting everything from histone deacetylase, immunomodulatory drugs, MBM2 inhibitors, uh, checkpoint inhibitors, antifibrosing agents, bed inhibitors, etc. There's a robust pipeline out there for ruxolitinib failure. Uh, and in particular, if individuals have failed both rux and fedradinib, please consider referrals for clinical trials. So some key take-home points, you really have to first assess risk and uh, your decision-making starts with consideration regarding the timing or absence of planning for a stem cell transplant. Ruxolitinib and fedradinib are both frontline approved agents. Fedradinib in the second line and in those with modest thrombocytopenia should be a strong consideration for you. The mamalinib and pacritinib uh, advanced phase three programs are particularly important. And if a trial is available near you for patients with marked thrombocytopenia and or anemia. And there is a very robust pipeline of additional agents in development for myelofibrosis. So with that, I know a lot of information and sometimes it takes uh, uh, us to kind of uh, bring it all home around some cases to be able to uh, give these uh, explanations. Here's a case, 66 years old, uh, uh, has primary myelofibrosis, diagnosed six years ago, found to have the calreticular mutation, symptomatic weight loss, night sweats, fatigue. The spleen is big, 14 centimeters, hemoglobin is 10.8, white count 14, platelets are 340. If we consider by the historical DIPSS risk, they have intermediate one risk disease. Uh, I like to think in complement with the disease burden. They've got lots of symptoms, splenomegaly. Uh, I consider whether they have anemia, progression, or movement toward AML. But they've got symptomatic intermediate one risk model fibrosis, and consistent with the NCCN guidelines, they begin on ruxolitinib. Now, this individual initially had improvement, had splenomegaly that shrank, symptoms improved, but developed transfusion dependence and left uh, my practice to, to live closer to grandkids. Now comes back, they're on a suboptimal dose of ruxolin. The spleen is big, lots of symptoms, anemic, the repeat bone marrow to look for progression has some concerning features. They've got increase in blasts and by next generation sequencing have the higher risk ASXO1 and IDH1 mutations. Now this individual by, M by the now MIPSS70 we can apply really has a more problematic disease. High risk disease, the survival is less at 34 years has failed ruxolitinib, 
by patient burden, has symptoms, spleen, anemia, and some progression. What do we do now? So here are uh, a few options here for you. Uh, all of the following are options. A second line therapy for this patient, except, so all of them are options except. So the correct answer was prescribe pacoridinib instead of ruxolitinib because pacoridinib is not yet approved. Uh, if it becomes approved, it might be a, a consideration. Uh, Mamalinib on a clinical trial would be an option. Patient is anemic, lesbatercept, that could be a clinical trial option. Uh, one could consider a transplant. This patient chose not to have one, but that could be a consideration. And certainly fedradinib certainly could be used as second-line therapy. So some key takeaways, an accurate diagnosis, prognosis, and symptom burden assessment is needed to develop your treatment plan for myelofibrosis. Molecular diagnostic panels are very helpful in assessing MF diagnosis and prognosis. JAK inhibition, both ruxolitinib and fedradinib, is appropriate frontline therapy for myelofibrosis. Fedradinib is approved and available as second line for ruxolitinib failure and uh, in uh, frontline for those with modest thrombocytopenia. Access Medical Education would like to thank our faculty for that excellent presentation and for their dedication to quality continuing professional development. And we thank each of you for your participation. Good day. This activity was provided in partnership with Access Medical Education and Q Synthesis. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at ReachMD.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.